you're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. My name is Jeff Milo, and joining me on the podcast today is Ed Burns, librarian, head of reference here at the Ferndale Area District Library. Also, Brendan Cradell is coming back. Brendan Cradell is associate professor of cinema studies at Oakland University. He joined us a few weeks ago on the podcast to talk about the Oscars. Today, Brendan Cradell is back to talk with myself and Ed Burns about world cinema, i.e. movies made outside of the United States, movies made outside of Hollywood from Italy, France, Japan, Denmark. We're talking about, albeit condensed, the last 120 years of history of films being made around the world and the ways in which American audiences have been able to access those films, usually through independent art house cinemas or through their public libraries. And Ed Burns is here on the podcast today to talk about starting up the International Film Collection here in the library, the Ferndale Library that circulates. When he first joined the staff uh, nearly 15 years ago, we did not have any international films in our DVD or VHS collection. I say VHS, of course, we don't have those anymore, but now cut to the future and Ed has been able to bolster this collection with hundreds of titles. So he talks about being able to actually start a collection from the ground up. And then Brendan Cradell is bringing all his insights from academia. We always love hearing about the history of cinema and his insights on it. And I'm here just to talk about movies I like. I'm having a good time listening to both of these gentlemen talk about great films made from all over the world from some amazingly talented directors. So thanks for tuning in. This is our chat on international cinema. Well, I just wanted to start off our podcast by going around our virtual table with the three of us here at Burns, Brandon Cradell returning and uh, sharing some some thoughts about this. I was going to ask what was the first international film that we remember seeing, however young we were, and whatever film that was that really ignited us and got us sort of curious about exploring world cinema. And, and as I'm formulating that question, I realized that I'm explicitly presenting that from an American standpoint, like everyone else is in that big wide category of world cinema and we're the mainstream U.S. cinema. But let's talk about what turned us on to movies beyond Hollywood. For me, um, it was a movie called Amarcord, a Fellini film from 1973. I grew up in Birmingham and I was a teenager there in the 70s. And at that time, there were three movie theaters in town. One was an art house and I saw um, I could walk from my house to the art house theater and see movies like Amarcord. And that was, that was the first movie that I can remember seeing that I had to read and that I found <laughs> that it was not off-putting at all to me. The movie, I just left feeling like it was just full of joy. And uh, like I said, the subtitles were not at all distracting. And I've always had great memories of that movie. And in preparation for this today, I watched it again last night. And mm. it's it's still a wonderful movie. It's uh, And seeing it as an adult, I see so much more in it. It's really bawdy and really <laughs> funny and warm. And it's just, it's just a thrilling piece of filmmaking so that's so great yeah i and maybe and i'll go in a second here but i just want to go off on a tangent here and brendan maybe you can add some insight i feel Mm -hmm. like that in the 
60s and 70s, Italian filmmakers, Bellini or Bertolucci, were getting some success by by kind of having that first sort of crossover success, sort of U.S. critics were paying attention to them. I feel like oh, that's yeah, the first for instance. Sure. I mean, Fellini, Antonioni, even oh, yeah, Antonio. um, in the same breath as and later Art Bertolucci were all making films in Italy, but making films for the world in yeah. Italy, which I think is a lot. It's a hard thing for for young cinephiles today to wrap their heads around the idea that these weren't just art house films, but Fellini would have been nominated for Academy Awards regularly mm-hmm. for his films. And mm-hmm. the same goes for not just his Italian contemporaries, but Ingmar Bergman, of course, is is productive at this time. Like the the globalness of the Academy has really actually diminished, I think, <laughs> quite I think a so. bit over time. Yeah. Um, the kind of stars of the art house that Ed's talking about mm-hmm. were fixtures in the imagination of American cinephiles in the 60s and 70s. And today I would struggle to think of more than one or two filmmakers who are based outside of the United States who are making films not in English and whose films are regularly talked about by average cinema goers in yeah. the United States. I'll just say for me, uh, and it sort of shows my age, and I don't really feel like I have an extraordinary answer here, but for me, being coming into adulthood around the turn of the millennium, obviously I would have encountered Amelie, Amelie from France, which oh, sure. was my my gateway and a, and a film that just was so radiant to me and uh, effervescent to boot. But, you know, it, very, it had its own signature style, too. Oh. Brendan, your whole life has become film. What was yeah? What was but your... it wasn't once upon a time, and <laughs> you know, I mean, my sort of awakening to film writ large, but certainly international cinema came in the early to mid nineteen nineties, and that so happens to coincide with the time when Krzysztof Kieślowski was really getting known outside of Poland. I mean, he had been making television and films in Poland for a while, but that cycle of films that he releases. I was probably too young to see the Decalogue when it came out in the late 80s. But mm-hmm. Double Life of Veronique and then the Three Colors trilogy were uh, blockbusters of the international cinema world right at the time when I started to become aware of it. And and really sort of shaped the way that a, a growing boy understood things like romance and fate and destiny and all that kind of stuff. So they just kind of hit me at the right time in my life to have a, a profound impact on me. But also listening to ed talk i'm thinking about how important art houses were to that and we're probably the last generation to come of age with art houses as a outlet for this and so it's actually kind of a a forgettable film uh, guantanamera a cuban film from the mid 90s that i remember seeing at the key theater in washington dc where i lived as a teenager that more so than the film itself, the community that formed around the film, the mm-hmm. fact that everybody had put it on their calendar to come to this place on on Wisconsin Avenue at this time, and then to be able to talk about the film mm-hmm. afterwards with the people who were there, th- that kind of community formation was a thing that was magical to yeah. a young guy who was seeing, like, these are my people. Yeah. Right? And that's a lot harder for someone today, because on the one hand, we have a lot more films <laughs> and access to everything is a lot easier. But the art house was a place to, you know, create a space for those kinds of conversations that it, it's trickier to navigate when you've got a lot of things available on streaming platforms. Yeah. 
Ed, you, in your youth, you worked in a theater. Yes, and in fact, I worked right across the street from the Art House Theater. Ah, I was going to so ask. I would stand at, you know, the ticket box and be able to see what was playing across the street and, and what was... wanting to be there instead of where, <laughs> where I was. And so you could see stuff like Last Tango in Paris coming through on the marquee, stuff like that. Yeah, and yeah. this is kind of uh, funny. There was a movie out called Tis Pity, She's a Whore that played mm. at the studio for, but on the marquee, they had Tis Pity, She's a dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and um, at the time as a teenager I thought that was kind of comical but now as an adult I kind of miss that sense of propriety Brandon I wanted you to go into to teacher professor mode here and give some yeah. give folks some context because the way I understand the narrative of the 20th century is that obviously World War II was happening in Europe and it was yeah. preoccupying folks between 19 roughly 38 and 46 uh, Hollywood was still churning out Maltese Falcon, Casablanca, mm -hmm. even Best Days of Our yeah. Lives or what have you. It's a good time for Hollywood. And those yeah. were going over to Europe. They weren't making their own films, but they were watching ours. And that ignited the, the early 50s. You get Italian and, and Japanese filmmakers just really stepping it up. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think you, you'll pardon me doing that professorial move where you have to begin at the beginning for everything. <laughs> I mean, it's worth recognizing Hollywood wasn't always there. Right. We didn't have Hollywood for the first 20 years of film history. And, and films were being made in places, in the United States at least, like Detroit and New York and mm -hmm. Chicago, cold places where you couldn't film outside for, you know, four <laughs> or five months out of the year and where there were labor unions. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and... Hollywood was a solution to a problem for the film industry in a lot of ways. Low cost labor, 12 months out of the year you could make films. Until that point, the consolidation of, of the American film industry in Hollywood, which happens in the 19 teens or so, America certainly had a productive film industry, but it was not the hegemon that mm -hmm. we think of it as today. And you can look at all around the globe to see films being made and importantly circulated because, of course, this is silent film we're talking about. So it's very cheap to just translate the intertitles to a different language and take an Italian film and play it in an American movie theater. And in a lot of cases in cities, at least, you also had sizable emigrant populations. So you might not even need to translate the intertitles. Mm -hmm. Sound is really like the Tower of Babel for, mm -hmm. for movies. By the time that the jazz singer comes around in this whole wave of, of uh, sound film in the late 20s and early 30s, it makes it really hard for countries to export their films unless they have a really resource-backed industry that can dub them. And so America is already the dominant player in the 1930s mm -hmm. and it's importing talent from around the globe. I mean, the story of Hollywood is the story of globalization of labor, of bringing the best and brightest from whatever country to Hollywood with the offer of fatter paychecks and more resources to make your movies. Marlena Dietrich, maybe. Yeah, you know. exactly. Right. And Joseph von Sternberg and like half of the people who are behind the camera when they're making those films. But you're absolutely right, Jeff. The uh, outbreak of World War II changes a lot of the equation. Importantly, we should note the international film festival movement, which is really critical to the post-war art house success that Ed is talking about, where filmmakers like Antonioni and uh, Fellini are are getting their uh, visibility, mm -hmm. starts with fascists in in Italy. Right, but Mussolini is the big backer of the Venice Film Festival, which is the first 
what we think of today as the first film festival. Um, but yeah, within a few short years, you've got the outbreak of World War II and basically the major European industries and Japan are totally um, Put shifted into kind of propaganda yeah. wartime production. You, I mean, look, go back and watch Casablanca and it's pretty clear that the United States is also... <laughs> clearly in propaganda wartime production mode too Indeed. but the the feature film industry here in the united states really um benefited from the fact that the marketplace was clear for the most part of competitors and uh certainly after world war ii you would say the united states is the dominant global cinema for a, for a while but the infrastructure to to allow for these international art house filmmakers to gain global visibility is also there during the war. Mm -hmm. And those film festivals become the place after the war where Rossellini and then Fellini is initially writing for Rossellini before he gets his break, where someone like Kurosawa, you know, the, the bold faced names of film history become bold faced at European film festivals in the mm -hmm. middle part of the 20th century. We're here in a library and you were you kind of mentioned this issue of can folks still access these these films considering especially that there are more and more being made now and obviously we're in the middle of a pandemic where people can't exactly go to the art house right now maybe they can start to things are starting to open up but this is a long way of getting around to how can people see more of these movies and maybe that's where a library comes in and i wanted to of course bring ed to the table here to talk about his initiative to get an international collection here at the library isn't that right ed you started it here can you tell us that story i did when i started here in 2007 we did not have a single foreign language movie that blows my mind and mm. i thought that that was shocking and uh, i just thought that a public library should have some foreign language films for people to see so i got the director at the time to give me a budget and i started by buying movies that I knew were important historically, that there were movies that people were still talking about, movies that had influenced other filmmakers, and that, that people, if they're just getting started watching foreign language films, they should see. And I don't know if you want me to mention a few of the movies that I started out with. Maybe you should name collection. Maybe you should name at least eight and a half <laughs> of your movies. No, I'm sorry. That's yeah. good. But please, yeah, we'd love to hear some of the ones that were that you knew immediately. I'll just give you a few. The first one, of course, is it's called Bicycle Thieves. And for many years, whenever I would see a list of the all-time great films that was compiled by film critics or film scholars or historians. Number one was always Citizen Kane, and number two or th number three was always The Bicycle Thief. So I knew I wanted to buy The Bicycle Thief, and when I went out to buy it, I found that somewhere along the line, somebody realized that the Italian title actually translates to Bicycle Thieves, not The Bicycle Thief. So that's what the movie is called now, and that was the first foreign language film that we had in our collection. And then I think the next one I bought was uh, Ingmar Bergman's The Seventh Seal. Ingmar Bergman is, you can still see Ingmar Bergman's influence. You can see it in Woody Allen movies. You can see it in TV commercials. You can see it in old Saturday Night Live sketches. 
I read um, Martin Scorsese said that if you were growing up in the 50s and 60s as an aspiring filmmaker, that you would have had to make a conscious effort not to be influenced by Ingmar Bergman. So, so I bought The Seventh Seal. And I could have just as easily bought Wild Strawberries or um, Smiles of a Summer Night, but uh, The Seventh Seal kind of epitomizes Ingmar Bergman to me. And and everybody knows the scenes with, you know, the soldier playing chess with death. Mm-hmm. And it sounds really grim, but it's really a very humorous movie mm-hmm. if you watch it. Mm-hmm. It's, there's a lot of lightheartedness in it. And then... I wanted to have something from the French New Wave, and I think uh, Breathless kind of uh, epitomizes that. So I bought that. So we have Breathless. One of the things that I think is interesting about the French films is Jean-Paul Belmondo was a big sex symbol, but he's not. And the French male sex symbols, they're not like classically handsome men. Mm -hmm. You have men like Jean-Paul Belmondo. Gerard Depardieu mm-hmm. and you know Patrick DeWare, who are are very sexy, but they're not pretty boys. Right, and that that's very interesting to me. There's that's, a, that's kind of an aside. As a breathless, he there are lots of scenes where he's drawing attention to his mouth. So I could definitely see that there's an oral thing going on. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, I bought La Dolce Vita, but I could have easily have bought La Strada or Eight and a Half, which ultimately I did buy. Rashomon by Kurosawa was another movie that always shows up on on the all-time greats. So I bought that. Uh, I have since bought Yojimbo and Seven Samurai. And then the last one I'll say is um, Rififi, which is a French film from the 50s. It's the granddaddy of caper films or heist films. Without Rififi, you don't have The Usual Suspects, Reservoir Dogs, all of the oceans mm-hmm. movies. There, even a fish called Wanda is descended from Rififi. So I thought that was an important one to have. Ah, it's beautiful. I have a couple of points I want to jump on there. The first one I can't resist, since we have a film professor here, is that I find it interesting that in the '50s in Hollywood, that's I guess sort of the golden era of musicals and very bright and very just generally uplifting films. But coming out of Europe, you had Bicycle Thieves, or you had from Italy, you had Umberto D coming out. You had all this mm. stuff that was not afraid to get real existential and dark. And, you know, so I, it was interesting to see them, I guess, processing all the trauma of World War II through their films. But that's what their, I mean, that's what their life was then. Like over here, we all went over there. Right. Our yeah. country was not really, you know, you couldn't see the devastation of the war here, but you could when you left your house in Italy. Absolutely. And that's what they were portraying. Yeah. I, I mean, I think those films in particular, the what we now think of as the Italian neorealist films mm-hmm. of Bicycle Thieves, Umberto Di, those films are also now we've depoliticized them with you know 60 plus years of history behind us but they were intensely political just by virtue of pointing a camera at that aftermath of the war and and the american glossiness of that period is itself masking a deep political rift in american film and in fact the film ed mentions rafifi is probably the best example of it because it's an american director who's been blacklisted from the united states who has to go to france to continue his career and he makes the defining heist film of french cinema in rafifi but jules dassin had 
been making neorealist style films like The Naked City here until he was run out of the country for for his support for left wing political causes. That in the McCarthyism 1950s. stuff has got a whole episode, yeah. a whole episode onto itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it is wild. And in fact, I would say Italy by the 1950s, Hollywood and uh, the Italian film industry really start to collaborate with each other. Mm-hmm. And you see this turn in Italian film and actually tracking Fellini's career is a great way to do this, to see when Fellini starts to become uh, more interested in the sort of dream world and the Jungian stuff. And he makes these really visually splendid films and La Dolce Vita is, you know, probably the best Pure example God. of that. Um, that's a big departure from the work that he had been doing with Rossellini, which is very carefully character studies of people who have seen their lives totally devastated by the war. But it also reflects the fact that it was a lot easier to sell tickets uh, when you were selling these giant, you know, uh, eight and a half scaled films um, as compared to something like Umberto D. But for my money, Umberto D is the best of them. And and that uh, is one of my very favorite films. I have to probably I like sad music too. Yes. As someone who is teaching students and often asking them to, for their homework, watch films that may or may not be hard to find. I imagine there are lots of scenarios where you say, hey, pupils, seek out your public library. Yeah. And I mean, it's so assuring to hear what you're saying, Ed, that, you know, the from the outside, it would strike me that you've got a real problem on your hand when you're in the position that you are and thinking about how to allocate, you know, the, the scarce resources that a, a library has to to put new titles in the collection like you could just go buy the dvds of the films that uh were in the theaters last week that everybody is going to want to watch because they missed them in the theaters but by next year nobody will want to see those films and they'll just be collecting dust in the library and the idea of collecting with an eye towards historical import and the awareness that this collection has stood the test of time that's really, you know, a, a real value to our community. So not thank to, you. Not to mention that a, a, a modern librarian can enter their new career being hired by a library and they'll know that uh, F. Scott Fitzgerald and Hemingway are already on the shelves. But Ed was in a position to build from the ground up. That's that's kind of exhilarating, maybe even overwhelming too, Ed. You've got to start from scratch. No, it was exhilarating yeah. because it's something that I'm passionate about and I wanted to share my passion with my fellow Ferndalians. Yes. So, no, it was, it was, uh, it was great. And, and we've gotten some good feedback on it, which is gratifying to me. And yeah, it's, it's been, uh, it's been a lot of fun for me and still is. I wanted to, to go around the room and talk about any specific directors. We've said a lot of titles and we have used Fellini's word, Fellini's name a lot, but I wanted to know if there were any directors that we felt hard for. And I'll go ahead and, first say that in my early 20s when I was just in kind of an anachronistic deconstructionist uh, <laughs> weird stuff is cool phase I really felt hard for Jean-Luc Godard not specifically breathless but his 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 weirder stuff uh, mm-hmm. not weirder but uh, <laughs> confrontational off-putting uh, disjointed films like Weekend or uh, conceptual films like Alphaville so that mm. that edgy French new wave stuff I really felt hard for Francois Truffaut was also cool not as not as uh, maybe not as punk rock as Godard was but still very <laughs> very cool 
I really felt I really fell for that stuff. Yeah, he's kind of the Elvis Costello to uh, Jean-Luc Godard's Sex Pistols. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, so, yeah, France is where I I went. And then Japan, of course, Kurosawa. I mean, for me, there are those filmmakers, the old adage actually of Truffaut's that in addition to all of his films, he was, of course, one of the best writers of uh, about cinema and was the one who we think of as introducing the the auteur theory. Mm -hmm which you know distilled to a elevator pitch is basically that the the worst film of a great director is more interesting than the best film of a bad director whether that's always true i don't know but certainly as a um, heuristic for going through the century plus of cinema history you could do a lot worse than finding those people who consistently jump out to you as doing interesting things and then following their experiments and for me, Wong Kar Wai was that guy. That's much more recent than the, the folks we're talking about. But when I saw Chungking Express in the 90s, and then especially in the mood for love, um, it was entrancing. It was a, it, it just something that even now I show regularly to my students and I find myself getting emotional on the 50th or 60th time. So knowing that means, you know, if this guy wants to film his kid playing soccer i'm gonna watch it right it's that kind of commitment that somebody who's really taken you to that place uh demands of you yeah yeah Yeah, i'll never forget uh i think it was ed himself who recommended a rather recent by comparison film which was volver from Mm. pedro Almodovar. and the word entrancing that you used very entrancing for me but he's a big favorite of mine uh pedro Almodovar, and i first i really noticed him uh, when i saw all about my mother which played down at the dia and you can just see in his movies how much he loves filmmaking but also how much he loves people and that it was a beautiful movie it, it really was and then i saw a movie called talk to her which was just a, a gorgeous movie and just a really good portrayal of an intimate friendship between men which you don't see in american cinema mm-hmm. and and i can't say his movies are always good but they're they're always interesting. They always have something interesting to say. They're always worth watching. Mm-hmm. There was one called The Skin I Live In with Antonio Banderas was in it. And it just I did I just didn't buy it, you know. It was just a little too weird and, you know, maybe a little bit sick, but it was still worth worth watching and mm-hmm. there was still visually it was stunning, if nothing else. You know, you could just ignore the story and and uh, enjoy the aesthetics mm-hmm. of it. So, mm-hmm. and you know, one of the things that that I like about Pedro Almodovar or some other directors that we've talked about, like Fellini, is that you know Fellini was winning Oscars starting in the fifties or being nominated from Oscars, and he could easily have been drawn to Hollywood and made a lot of money and working for the studios, but he didn't. He stayed home and made the movies that he wanted to make. And the same is true of Pedro Almodovar. Because he's had some commercial and critical successes over here. And he's won a couple of Oscars. And But he stays home, you know. Mm-hmm. He, he could easily get a job over here and, and make a lot of money and put out some trashy movie. Oh, yeah. But he doesn't. Yeah, that, and that transitions 
perfectly into my my next point of of discussion is that we we have seen directors extremely recently Chloe Zhao, although very much on her own terms, Ang Lee, Alfonso Cuarón, uh, Guillermo del Toro, Alejandro Inarrito, coming over here and 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 winning Oscars even, not even just having success. So that's wanted to I guess to just pick uh, Brendan's brain on on that on that recent history. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. I think Ed has set us up really well here because there it does strike me that there's a real historical rupture between the way things operated in the. 50s, 60s, 70s, and the way that Hollywood engages with global talent today. On the one hand, it's probably the case today that there are more opportunities for international talent in Hollywood than there would have been. But I think it also comes at the cost of exactly what Ed is saying, which is that there is a a sort of flattening of cultural specificity in the opportunities that are made available. Mm -hmm. And and tracking the three filmmakers that we really associate with Mexican cinema of the 21st century is a a really great way to do that because Gonzalez Iñárritu and Del Toro and Cuarón have made such an impact upon global cinema and... Certainly, you could watch their films with a careful eye and say that there's a sort of an influence coming out of their work in the Mexican uh, television and cinema in the 1990s. And rarely they have made films that are Mexican set. Roma, I guess, is maybe the, the one recent example. But for the most part, those filmmakers now work almost exclusively in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to knock them for it, I'm sure that they have a lot more opportunities and they get to work with a lot more resources that they do. And I'm sure also their trophy cases of Oscars um, (laughs) would be smaller if they had continued to work in Mexico. Um, But on the other hand, I mean, Ed's point about Fellini is really well taken. What could we imagine if Del Toro had continued to make films along the lines of Penance Labyrinth, which in fact is itself a more of a, a Spanish folklore than a Mexican folklore. Mm-hmm. But to have that kind of engagement is a hard thing to imagine now because instead we get films like uh, Birdman or or um, the the Leonardo DiCaprio hides inside a carcass, film, uh, the name of which is slipping my mind. I uh, can tell what made an impact the, on the, me. Yes, the, the Revenant. Revenant. Thank you. Well, yeah, I guess that that brings up the the question of what what about them, whether it's their style or or their signature voice. What to what extent is that maybe being watered down? It maybe is where you're going, but that that's where my brain is going. But what mm. and I I've always seen that he loves to he he really loves to play with the camera. Even if you watch the one Harry Potter film he did, it's all about camera oh, tricks. Yeah. Or if you think of Gravity, it's all about the camera. And then uh, Del Toro monsters he's continuing monsters uh with his uh love story with a fish man he's still keeping that uh you know and in Aruto, i've not, i i need to see i believe he had a film with javier bardem called beautiful was that him mm-hmm. from so yeah. i haven't seen that so i have only seen an Aruto in hollywood i need to go back and look at what he's into but obviously the two big hits that he's had is very confrontational big on close-ups big on rawness just thinking out loud of whether or not they're sacrificing anything. And to an extent, I imagine. I mean, they I'm sure if you ha- if we were lucky enough to have them on this podcast, they'd say <laughs> they're very much interested in the stories they're telling. Yeah. And I think you're right, Jeff, to talk about the through line stylistically that connects, you know, children of men to the the Mexican work that he was doing yeah. prior to getting that work. Yeah, it's 
it's outstanding. And to bring Mexican talent, not just directorial talent, but, you know, Chiva Lubezki is arguably the defining cinematographer of our lifetimes. And uh, his work with them will be the thing, and with Terrence Malick, will be the thing that we remember as being, you know, one of the massive cinematographic accomplishments. And that's great. And I don't want them to not make those kinds of films. Right. But I think when you contrast what they've done with, say, Bong Joon-ho, yeah. who is another example of this bold-faced international director, but in Ed's earlier reference to Fellini, Bong has continued to make films that are very specifically Korean, while at the same time managing to sneak in projects you know, like Snowpiercer and Okja that are less specifically rooted to one or the other place. But a film like Parasite has to happen in Seoul. Mm -hmm. And yet the success of Parasite, I would hope, indicates to us that just because a film is not in English or is taking place in a city that doesn't happen to be in the United States doesn't mean that people aren't going to get really excited about it and watch it. You know, it, it would be great for us all if we had more films like that that right. I think would inspire today's generation coming of age of cinephilia to have that same relationship with the art house, you know, that we were talking about earlier today. Right. We're, so we're talking about, and just as a last point to wrap up here, we're talking about to what extent filmmakers from around the world have success here and whether their films are hits, I guess. Obviously, two big points, Amelie and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon were breakthrough successes. But what we also have seen and, and, I, and I wonder when this phenomenon started, probably within the last 40 years, if I took a random guess, is that there have been producers, probably mainly here in Hollywood, who have said, that looks like a, an interesting movie. What if we just put American actors into it? And it was Ed who told me about a film called Infernal Affairs, which mm. yes. I think was made in Hong Kong, I think. Yes, it was made in Hong Kong. And what I said to Jeff is that it really makes me sad that the only Oscar that Martin Scorsese has is for directing a remake. That's right. <laughs> and it is The Departed. The Departed was taking that general story. And I, there's not much difference going on in Infernal Affairs. One big difference is it wraps up in 100 minutes as opposed to 130. But that's Scorsese. But yeah, so the, and now the latest news that was just announced is that the uh, the Danish film with Mads Mikkelsen... Another round. Another round is going to be remade with American cast and Leonardo DiCaprio. And so, you know, you mentioned that Bong Joon-ho, that story of Parasite had to happen in Seoul. Mm -hmm. Someone can look at uh, another round and say, well, that movie doesn't have to happen in Denmark. And I won't have to write another script. <laughs> yeah. Can I just mention one movie? Please. Since we're on this subject that... I the Birdcage. Oh yeah, that movie was oh, wildly yeah. successful, and it's a remake of a French movie called La Cage aux Folles. And first of all, the French just do farce better than we do. It's just you you can't argue with that. So there's that, and then the other really sad thing to me was that the Birdcage was. The screenplay was written by Mike Nichols and Elaine May. And and watching the movie, if you had seen the original, you can see scenes and lines that were directly pulled. But what really makes me makes me sad in the same way The Departed does is that <laughs> The Birdcage was the first time that Mike Nichols and Elaine May had worked together in 40 years. And they came up with something so utterly mediocre. 
I just, I've just never gotten over it. <laughs> <laughs> so that's all I'll say. Elaine May is Yeah, awesome. there's a lot along those lines with the birdcage to appreciate the constellation of talent that's mm -hmm. on set for mm -hmm. that film. And yet to understand what they've all come together to do is, is such a stress just oh, I to mean, watch the casual fall my goodness diane yeah. weist was fresh off her oscar win for that i mean yeah, yeah. set aside robin williams and at all yeah please watch the casual fall and please watch the subtitled version do not watch the dubbed <laughs> version but uh but brendan this is a, a thing now hollywood remakes it is a thing. Although, you know, I'm again glad, Ed, that you mentioned this idea of dubbing. Yes, you shouldn't watch things that are dubbed if you don't have the choice. <laughs> but a thing that's really strike, striking me lately and that really throws this into relief, I think, is the again, to return to the streamers, the business model of streamers and Netflix is the clearest example here depends on a maximal approach to content, right? There is no effective marginal cost to adding a title to Netflix streaming collection. And so, so far as they're concerned, more is always more. And especially if they're going to acquire a title that they know is going to play well in the European market, well, they've already got the rights to it. So why not try to find some revenue for it in the American market, in the African market, etc. Reshooting all of those shows would be cost prohibitive. So instead, they dub and dub and subtitle all of these programs. And the thing is, they're very successful. If you look at programs like Money Heist and um, Barbarians, they're doing really well outside of their home market. American audiences are watching these serials that are produced in other countries and in other languages with subtitles or in dub and, and coming back again and again to them. Yet for some reason, the same executives that are observing this in their streaming aren't making the connection when it comes to the films that they're greenlighting. Like Another Round is a great film and it's hilarious and it's sobering. And I use that word with both in meanings intended here. <laughs> Go release it in the United States more broadly than you did. And, and people will come and watch it. It's bizarre. Um, and Mads, Mads Mikkelsen has already had crossover success. He's here. Yeah. You know? And so. Thomas Vinterberg is famous. I mean, maybe not famous in the way that, you know, Bong Joon-ho or these other directors are talking about is famous, but he, this isn't an unknown filmmaker by any stretch. So the cost to doing that compared to the cost of paying Leonardo DiCaprio for his time to produce a remake of this film I, I mean, obviously, I'm just a humble professor. I don't get paid the big bucks to make decisions about what to greenlight and what not to. But this just seems a little too much like an idiosyncratic preference. Like Leonardo DiCaprio saw the movie, thought it was great, just like I did. The difference is he thought it would be greater if I remade it with myself in the starring <laughs> role, which is not something that I thought when I saw it. Oh, boy. Ed, any closing thoughts? I, I, I'm with with Brendan in, in missing the art houses and... I would love to see I would love to see more of that come back. It's just there's just a whole different there's just a it's just a different experience to sit in the dark with a bunch of people and, and watch a movie. Mm -hmm. and, and I love lying on my couch watching movies. I really do. I mean, no matter where I am or what I'm doing, I would probably rather be lying on my couch <laughs> watching a movie. But it's just it's just a, a different experience yeah. and and you know, you were talking to Brennan about, you know, going to the art house and feeling like, wow, these are my people. And uh, I, I, I miss I miss that. I miss sharing. 
Oh yeah. That experience. If I might, any of us, when we moved to a new city, I mean, I'm a fairly recent transplant to Ferndale within the last five or six years. Uh, if you love books, you know, when you get to a new city that the, the, the homing beacon is at the public library, mm -hmm. uh, book lovers gather at bookstores and at libraries. Um, for years, cinephiles gathered at art houses. Art houses, sadly, aren't as plentiful as they used to be. And, you know, we hope that main art will reopen. People should support Cinema Detroit. People should support uh, the DFT. They should support their local art houses for sure. But I think it would also be a great thing out of COVID if we began to see our public libraries also as the kinds of places where we could gather to recreate that kind of community around film mm -hmm. that we're already accustomed to thinking of the public library as a place to find our community for book lovers. And the fact that Ed has built this collection is the, the foundation stone around which we can do it. So everybody meet me at the library. Yes. Once they open yeah, their doors. Yeah, these are great conversations to have. I listen to a lot of film podcasts and often they talk about films that are made outside of, of America and they'll say, hey, we just got done talking about this, this film. Try to find it at your local library. There's lots of plugs out there and the library is the source for that. So so glad to have ed here thank you so much for all you do ed thank you jeff and uh brandon thanks again for joining us we love talking to you about film we're gonna do it again soon okay oh my pleasure jeff and it was good to meet you ed and good, good to, to chat you with you thanks for your time and uh for joining us here all right until next time guys And that was Brendan Cradell, Associate Professor of Cinema Studies at Oakland University and Ferndale resident, speaking with myself, Jeff Milo, and Ed Burns, longtime librarian, head of reference, and developing our film collection, particularly our international film collection. A lot of great directors discussed today, from Fellini to Godard to Kurosawa to Bergman, so many, and you know what? They're all here in this library. If you wanted to get started, you can visit our online catalog and start placing some holds. And I especially look forward to the opportunity to sit in a dark room with perfect strangers and look up at a big glowing screen and see stories told with compelling characters and original narrative voices and so much catharsis and a sense of connection through the depiction of the human experience. That's what it's all about and so much more. So you have been listening to a little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I am Jeff Milo, and the music that you hear coming in and out of this podcast each week is by local musician Chad Stocker. If you'd like to support this podcast, you can visit ferndalefriends.org or just tell a friend. You could tell a friend about this episode if you particularly liked it or share it to social media. If you've been listening to us for a while already, remember to rate, review, subscribe, or leave a comment because it will help us find more listeners. And we thank you for listening to this episode.